Good morning, Pathway. You are loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's open his word and hear what Jesus has to say to us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Just before we read these two short verses, uh, a brief word of explanation. There is a, an ancient Jewish expression, a description of Jewish leaders, which is to call a, a Jewish teacher a, a guide or a leader to the blind. So ancient Jewish teachers would call themselves leaders or guides of the blind. You hear that in Romans chapter 2, verse 19, for instance, Paul speaks of Jewish teachers in that way. And we're going to read a text from Luke chapter 9, the words of Jesus. The same story is told in Matthew chapter 15, and there it's obvious that Jesus is speaking about the Pharisees, which were a, a group within Judaism at the time, and he's calling them not just guides to the blind, he's saying they're blind guides who are blind, uh, leading the blind. And so he's critiquing in this text the religious leaders. He's critiquing the religious teachers. And at the same time, he's encouraging his own disciples and ourselves not to learn from blind teachers, but to learn from Jesus. That's what's going on in this text. Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. This is the word of God. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is the words of Jesus. What I'd like to spend some time with you this morning doing is, is thinking through with you, meditating with you on what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? The word disciple is used 269 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We hear the word disciple all the time, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be a disciple? In Greek, the word for disciple is matateus, and it literally means learner. To be a disciple is to be a learner. Our English word disciple comes from a Latin root, which means pupil, like a school pupil who is there to learn. And so what I want to explore with you is the good news of Jesus Christ from Luke chapter 6 on what it means to be a disciple. Specifically, it means to be a learner. If you're a Christian or you're interested in becoming a Christian, to be a Christian is to be a learner. And then to start off, I would say that if, if to be a Christian is to be a learner, well, then you would have to say that to be a learner is by its very nature to be humble. To be a learner is to be humble. Because after all, think about the answer to this question. What percentage of all human knowledge do you think that you know? What percentage of all human knowledge do you think you know? And if you say like 1%, that's way too much. It's kind of humbling to think how little you know of all possible human knowledge. So, and then you could follow it up with this question. Okay, so of, of the tiny little percentage of human knowledge that you know, how much of it do you know really well or correctly? <laughs> not very much. Not very much at all. And then you could go on to a third question. You say, of the tiny percentage of knowledge that you know, 
and then of the even smaller percentage of that knowledge that you really do understand correctly, what percentage of that are you confident in, in applying well in your own life? Pretty much nothing. I'm always struck just in my general world around me how I pretty much know nothing about everything. Like, this is made out of wood, I think. Like, so what do I know about woodworking and wood and varnish and, I don't know, veneer? And then what do I know about trees and how they grow? Like, I know nothing. I know nothing about this. Pretty much nothing. And you could just think about your whole life like that. We know a tiny percentage of all human knowledge. That which we know, we don't know very well. And that which we do know well, we don't apply particularly well. If we're going to be learners, we've got to start off and say, nah, I've got to be humble. I've got to be humble. That's why philosophers around the world, religious leaders from all kinds of different religions, uh, they all often repeat a proverb that goes something like, the more that I learn, the more I realize how little I know. Something like that. Learners must be humble. If to be a Christian is to be a disciple, is to be a learner, you have to be humble. You could, you could, you know, if, if, you're, if you're still feeling pretty confident about your knowledge, then I could ask you this question. What percentage of God's knowledge do you know? <laughs> or what percentage of all the possible knowledge about God do you know? Squat diddly. To be a learner means you have to be humble. To humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I watched an, an interview with a Christian psychologist and author who he said, usually when we enter into a conversation with somebody, we, we come into it, if we're trying to be humble, we enter it and say, well, in this particular conversation, in this particular domain, I, I know quite a bit, but I'm going to be humble. So I'm going to open myself up to the possibility that I could be wrong and maybe I can learn something from the other person. Often we engage in our own relationships like that. Maybe you've got something you've studied or read a book on or something you have experience in, and you're in a conversation like, I kind of know what I'm talking about, but I'll be humble. Maybe I could learn something here. And this, this Christian psychologist, he says, that's not real humility. Real humility would be to say, I'm probably wrong about most of what I know, but I'm open to, be, to learning to be a little bit less wrong. Real humility, humility is to say, I'm open to learn to be a little bit less wrong than I generally am on these things. To have a humble learning status. To be a disciple is to be a learner and to be humble. This is, by the way, if you'll permit me to do a little aside, this is why when you uh, have in, in this church, when you have elders and deacons and a, and a pastor become an elder or a deacon and a pastor, you make them sign a form that says, I subscribe, I agree with the confessional documents of this church. And the reason you do that is because you know that most pastors who get behind this pulpit barely know anything. They don't know very much at all. They went to seminary for a couple of years and they studied some stuff, but in the grand scope of things, they barely know anything. And so what you do is you say, well, we've got some confessional documents that is like distilled wisdom that has been passed down through hundreds of years. And it's kind of reliable. It's been passed down through millions of Christians and it's been distilled and, and we can rely on this. So we better get the guy that stands up here to subscribe to that so that he doesn't lead us astray because he pretty much knows nothing. That's why you do that. We need to be humble. So to be a learner for, right off the bat means to be humble. To be a disciple of Jesus means you need to be humble. 
It also means that you have to be careful who you learn from. If to be a disciple is to be a learner, you have to be careful who you learn from. We're all learners, and we're all constantly learning from others. So you see that with, with babies, right? So babies, they got these big eyes, and they don't talk, and they just, like, consume information. They look at their mom or their dad. They look, they're always looking around. They, they, they're so busy learning, they don't notice that they're drooling all over you. They, they're just absorbing information. For, like, years, babies just absorb information, and it's creating pathways in their brain, and they're just learning, 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 before they even bother to speak one word. And we're all doing that. We all walk around all of our life, and we're just constantly learning from things. We're constantly learning. And so we better pay attention to who we're learning from. Who are we learning from? We're all learners, but who is our teacher? So uh, I had uh, a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I sat on the, uh, on the, or stood on the balcony with a, a pilot from MEF, from Mission Aviation Fellowship. And he was a young guy who's in his early 20s. We were in West Africa. He had been brought over to do some commercial flights for MAF in, in West Africa. And he was from Texas. He was a good Texas guy. And uh, he admitted to me, as we sat on the porch, he's like, I haven't quite decided if I want to learn from Jesus or John Wayne. So John Wayne, for all of you people who are under the age of 50, it was like a, an old Western actor. He always played the cowboy, and he was, like the, he was a man's man, tough guy. He, you know, his solution to everything was to shoot people. And so this guy, this young, young Texas Christian, he was like, I, who should I learn from, Jesus or John Wayne? This was like a real struggle for him, he said. You got to be careful who you're going to learn from. So, you know, you... I don't think anybody here is like, well, I really want to learn from John Wayne. But who are you learning from on a daily basis? Who, who, are, who are you absorbing as your, as your teacher? Are you learning from Jesus or are you learning from Joe Rogan? Are you, are you learning from Jesus or are you, are you learning from Charlie D'Amelio? Who are you learning from? We're all learning. Who are you learning from? Who am I learning from? You want to be careful who you're learning from. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn from all kinds of different people. Of course you can. You can learn from all kinds of different people. I'm not saying that you have to go to your bookshelf at home or to your podcast and erase everything that's not Jesus. You can learn from all kinds of different people. But Jesus says in our text that there exists in the world such thing as blind guides. There are such people that, that come across as teachers. They're looking to teach you but they're blind, and if you learn from them, if you follow them, they will lead you into a pit, into a hole, into a well. The pit in, in biblical language is, is often the pit of despair or even the pit of hell. And so Jesus is saying that there are lots of blind guides around there. There's lots of people who want to be your teacher who you can learn from, but they don't leave you to good places. And it's not like they're like, Boogeymen. They're not like these evil, hulking people like hiding in the showers, the shadows waiting to like grab you and teach you something wrong. No, they, they are often nice people, best-selling authors, people who have interesting things to say. Sometimes they're like Pharisees. The, the Pharisees back in Jesus' day were really nice people. They were like the most religious people. They came to church twice every Sunday. They were like super religious. 
right? I think that if, if you were alive back in Jesus' day, a lot of you would have really liked the Pharisees. And Jesus says that, you know, despite the fact that they are, you know, upright and well-intentioned, they were blind guides that led people to the pit of hell. So you've got to be careful who you learn from. And sometimes those blind guides are not just like way out there, like in, you know, in, in the world or something, but often they're quite a bit closer than you think. It's easy for me to sort of like throw out the name Joe Rogan or something, pick on a celebrity, you know, that, that's, that's easy to do. But sometimes the blind guides in your life are your parents or your school teachers or your best friends. Sometimes they're closer than you think. How many parents have not blindly led their children down the path of worshiping mammon or money? How many parents have not blindly led their children down the path of blasphemous entertainment, selfish lifestyles? abusive relationships. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many of us and the people that we know have not been corrupted by spiritually blind school teachers? And if you're not careful, sometimes you get a blind guide at the pulpit or around the consistory table. Blind guides that lead you into legalism or lead you into sort of moral laxity. Or blind guides that lead you into sectarianism. Or blind guides that lead you into some sort of false ecumenicism. I'm not saying you have to walk around being suspicious of everybody, and I'm not, certainly not teaching children to be also suspicious about your parents in case they're a blind guide. But we are called to be discerning by Jesus himself. To be discerning. Because there are spiritually blind men and there are spiritually blind women who will promise to guide you to beautiful things, but who will lead you into the pit of hell. Spiritually blind men and spiritually blind women who will, who will say, oh, come, you know, let, let, me, let me help take that sawdust out of your eye for you. But they got a giant plank in their own, to use the words of Jesus. And so, this is an important warning for us. Jesus is giving us an important warning about blind guides. And it's important because in our text, Jesus says that disciples become like their teachers. Disciples become like their teachers. Jesus says something pretty shocking in, in Matthew 23, talking to Pharisees again. This is what he says, Matthew 23. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. He's saying disciples become like their teachers, and sometimes they become worse than their teachers. You already know that. Sometimes you have like... You know, you, you, you know people that you're like, oh, it's a chip off the old block. They're exactly like their mom. They're exactly like their dad. And oftentimes we mean like their mannerisms or the way that they look. But sometimes you also get it otherwise where you're like, that guy just says exactly what his dad says. Or, you know, that guy or that girl is just parodying what their mom says. You can, you can hear it in their opinions and the way that they talk about things. 
Sometimes you have it, you recognize as someone's speaking to you, you're like, oh, I know what you've been reading, or I know what you've been watching, right? So I don't know if any of you uh, journal. Um, I journal about once every three years. Um, and, but it's good because I've got one journal book, and it's lasted me since I was like 18. And uh, every once in a while, I could page back through there, and I can see sort of what I was writing when I was 18, or when I was 25, or when I was 30. And uh, it's really obvious to me when I look back, and be like, oh yeah, I can tell what you were into back then, Winston. You were reading this guy, or you were like, you were really into this thing. And it comes through in your original ideas in your journal. I'm just following the teachers that I was reading. That happens. We're all learners. We're all learning from somebody. Who are you a disciple of? Who are you learning from? The point of our text is that we need to learn from Jesus. To learn from Jesus. So let me, let, let me, let me pause here and give you a little bit of a, a little piece of history. All right? A little bit of historical archaeology. You can go on Google Maps and you can... Uh, you can find a place in modern-day Syria on the banks of the Euphrates River, and it is a, uh, the ruins of a city called Dura Europus. Dura Europus. If you type that into Google Maps, you can find it. Dura Europus, if you were to go back a couple of thousand years, was this bustling metropolis, a really diverse place, people with different languages, different races, different cultures, different religions on the banks of the Euphrates River. It was a, it was a pretty fantastic place. Uh, if it was still around today, a lot of you would want to go there for a holiday. Cool place. In 256 after Christ, it was attacked by what is called the Empire of the Iranians, and they sacked the place, and they, uh, they killed all the inhabitants or sent them away, and then they abandoned the city. And in that part of the world, if you abandon a city long enough, then the sand dunes take it over and it sort of gets covered in sand and it was abandoned and nobody ever lived there since. And then in 1933, there was a bunch of archaeologists who went to Syria and they, uh, they excavated Dura Europus and they discovered some super amazing things. So one of the big things that, that lasted in the city was they had a big wall around the city, and the wall was really thick, and in that wall were, were rooms or houses. There were houses built into the wall. And in one of those houses, they found the earliest found example of a Christian church from 256 after Christ. The earliest example that we have of a Christian church. And it's, historically, it's really interesting. Christians first started meeting in people's homes, and this, uh, this was a, a house, a home in the wall, that uh, they had broken the wall between two homes and they made it into a church building. So it was no longer a home, it was obviously a church. And so it's one of the earliest examples of a habit that we have of that. And then what's even more interesting, it, the art on the walls was still there. So this is one of the earliest examples we have of Christian art on these frescas on the walls. And uh, you, can, you can find pictures of this on the internet. So they've got They've got pictures of, especially in the room where they do the baptisms, they had pictures of Jesus as a shepherd and uh, Jesus healing people. Uh, they have a picture of Jesus walking on the water. But this is what's super interesting and pertinent for this message about this, is that uh, we know from Dura Europus, but as well as from all kinds of other places uh, uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire at that time or in, the, in, in that era, that there was a particular way that people drew philosophers. They had a special haircut, they had a special robe, they often were, were, you know, were, were painted going like this, as if they were showing the way. 
and you find this, this image of a philosopher all over the place. And in this Christian church, the paintings of Jesus, they painted Jesus to look like a philosopher. Jesus standing like a philosopher with a philosopher's robe and a philosopher's haircut. And the reason for that is because they understood that Jesus was a teacher. Philosophers were teachers of the good life. Philosophers in the ancient world dealt, helped you deal with the big questions of origins and virtue and meaning, but also kinds of practical things. Philosophers wouldn't, didn't just write books that you don't, you know, the average person doesn't understand. Philosophers taught you how to be a friend, how to run your household, how to keep care of your body. And Christians understood that Jesus was that kind of philosopher. They understood Jesus was a teacher. And Writing this sermon, researching this sermon was kind of humbling for me because when I talk about Jesus, I tend to talk about Jesus as a redeemer and a savior and my Lord and, you know, uh, Jesus as a shepherd and, you know, I use these language, but I don't often talk about Jesus as a teacher and I should. Early Christians certainly understood that Jesus was their teacher. If we want to be biblical and if we want to be disciples, if we want to be learners, we need to think about Jesus and follow Jesus as a teacher. And that's just biblical. In the, in the, in the Gospels, Jesus is called teacher 45 times. Uh, at the end of all the Gospels is the Great Commission, and the Great Commission includes make disciples and teach them everything that I have taught you. Right? Jesus, the teacher. We also have that. Uh, this church uh, has some confessional documents, including the Heidelberg Catechism. And in Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus is called our chief prophet and teacher. He's our teacher. When, when you have a, a infant baptism in this church, then these words are often read may, uh, or often prayed over the child. May he or she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and High Priest, Jesus Christ. So we have in, in, in the Bible and then in our ecclesiastical history the idea that Jesus is a teacher. In my church, often as our call to worship, we use these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Those are words of Jesus, the teacher. And so we want, if we're going to be disciples who are learning, we want to learn from this teacher from Jesus the teacher. And then you notice in our text, what does it say? Our text says something about the relationship between the disciple, the learner, and the teacher. It does, talks about the, you want to be fully trained for, for what? It does not say to be fully trained in order to know more about Jesus, which is good. It's good to know more about Jesus, but that's not what it says. It's not about fully trained to fill yourself with head knowledge. It doesn't say um, to be fully trained to believe something about Jesus, although it's important, of course, to believe things about Jesus. That's not what it says. It says the, the disciple must be fully trained to be like the teacher, to be like Jesus. And that just fits with the ancient world's idea of what it means to be a teacher and a learner. If you were a disciple of somebody... Your aim was to imitate that person, to be like them, all right? So, you know, I use the example in, in, in my church, we have, a, uh, we have one of a teacher in our congregation, and she, her, the color of her hair is always changing, and uh, it's really bright, so oftentimes she has bright purple hair, which is pretty cool for her school, uh, school students, they think that's neat. But if you were a, a kid in the ancient world, and you had a teacher with purple hair, you would probably go home and you would dye your hair purple too. 
because you would want to be exactly like your teacher. And that's sort of the sense of, of being a, a learner of the teacher Jesus. The idea is not just that we know something about him or that we believe in him, but that we imitate him and that we are like him, fully trained to be like him. And when you think about that, it's a little bit more like an apprenticeship where you don't just adopt the ideas and the verbal teaching of your teacher, but you adopt their mannerisms and their virtues and your, their skills and their way of life, the way of doing things. So when you think about that, then a bunch of texts in Scripture come alive. So John 13, 14 through 15. I gave you an example that you, should also, that you also should do as I did to you. That's Jesus speaking. Philippians 2. Have the same attitude in yourselves as that which was in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you are called. Christ left you an example that you should follow in his steps. Follow the example of Christ. Christians have understood for a long, long time that if you want to know how to live the practical life, if you want to know, for instance, how do I treat members of the opposite sex? How do I deal with conflict? How do I care for my health? How do I pray? How do I help the poor? The way that you do those things is by imitating Jesus imitating how Jesus did those things, to learn from the teacher. So in, uh, in this church's uh, church history, there was a, a pretty famous theologian in the Netherlands called Herman Bavink. And Herman Bavink says this, I quote, The life of Christ is the shape, the model, that our spiritual life must assume and toward which it must grow. The life of Christ is the shape, the model that our spiritual life must assume and toward it must grow. So the life of Christ, how Jesus lived his life, is what we aim for and what we try to assume, what we try to adapt our own everyday life to that. That's what we try to become. So to be a Christian disciple is to learn from Jesus the teacher, to imitate him, to model our life after him, to grow in Christ-likeness, to be like him. So that means Christianity if you don't already know this, is way more than just believing certain theological truths. Christianity is way more than that. Christianity is to walk like Jesus walked. Christianity is to, to aim as your disciple to be like Jesus tomorrow when you go to work or when you go to school or when you spend time at home. To walk as Christ walked. To be transformed into the image of Christ, to use Pauline language. Herman Bavink you know, says this as well. We must imitate Christ in everything, albeit in our own way, with our own individual personality, status, social class, and calling. In other words, you're not a Jew living in Palestine 2,000 years ago, so you have to figure out how to follow Christ in your circumstance, with your personality, with your life. That's what he's saying. You have to adapt that. So what you want to do is you're like, okay, so as I go to school or to work or at home or you know, when I'm visiting somebody or talking to my neighbor or driving my car, I want to think about the attitude of Christ and make his attitude my attitude right now. And I want to think about the humility of Jesus and say, I'm, I, how can I be humble like Jesus in this moment and make Jesus' willingness to serve my willingness to serve and to make Jesus' 
self-sacrificial attitude, my self-sacrificial attitude, and to see that Jesus was always helping the vulnerable, so then in my life, in my circumstance, I'm going to try to help the vulnerable. To see Jesus' lack of attachment to material riches make that my lack of attachment to material riches, to make his treatment of the opposite sex my guide to treat those of the opposite sex, his commitment to truth and grace, grace and truth, my same commitment when I'm at work or at home or at school, or at church, to make Jesus' respect for the Ten Commandments my own respect for the Ten Commandments, to make his hatred for injustice and sin and hypocrisy, to develop that same hatred for those things in my own life, in my own circumstances, to make Christ's great concern for the glory of God in all things, to say, how I'm going to aim for that in my life. I'm going to make that my, my desire of my heart, to glorify God in all things, to make his love your love. There was a, a, an American philosopher named Dallas Willard at the, at the University of Southern California who said it like this. He says, the, you know, the question is not just what would Jesus do? Some of you remember how you know, there used to be bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD and t-shirts, and it was like a big thing. Um, Dallas Willard says, you don't want to just ask what would Jesus do? You want to say, what would Jesus do if Jesus was me? What would Jesus do if Jesus was me? If Jesus had my personality and my circumstances, what would be his goals? What would he work toward? If Jesus was me with my income, what kind of financial decisions would Jesus make? If Jesus was me when I'm feeling lonely, what would Jesus do if he was me? If Jesus was me when he was faced with the pressures of high school friendships at the end of a school year, what would Jesus do if Jesus was me? If Jesus was me, a parent that's just exhausted by the demands of little children, or exhausted by the trials of older children, what would Jesus do if he was me? Those are interesting questions that help us to be learners of Christ, if, uh, if following Christ. If Jesus was me, an extrovert always in need of company, or an introvert who just wishes this sermon would be over so I can go home and read my book by myself, what would Jesus do if Jesus was me? If Jesus was me, how would he handle this conflict that I'm faced with at work or this conflict in my relationships, this opportunity at school? What would Jesus do if Jesus was me? The life of Christ must be the shape and the model that our spiritual life assumes and toward which it moves as a goal. Because as Jesus says, the disciple is not above his teacher. In other words, the disciple must be like his teacher, and once that disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. So if you were to sum up everything that I've said here then, it's in to be a disciple is to be a learner. You have to be humble if you're going to be a learner. You want to be very careful who you want to learn from because there's blind guides out there. What you want to do is you want to learn from Jesus to be trained by him to be like him in every way. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a Christian. It's a good thing Jesus is our teacher. Jesus doesn't have any specks or dust in his eyes, does he? Jesus is never hypocritical. Jesus is somebody you can follow with full confidence. Jesus is somebody that we all, in the deepest parts of our heart, do want to be like. I'm... I'm well aware that most of what a pastor says on a Sunday morning is forgotten by Wednesday, maybe by Sunday night. 
So if you're not going to remember anything that we've meditated on this morning, I do hope you remember this one thing. The greatest teachers don't only just teach their students, but they also love them. Isn't that true? You know that if, if, if so, I don't know, maybe you've got some school teachers here, and you know that a good teacher loves their students. Or maybe you've had a teacher like that who you knew loved you. The best of teachers will love their students so much that if needs be, they'd be ready to die for them. You see where I'm going with this? In 2012, there was a 27-year-old grade one teacher in Connecticut named Victoria Soto. She was a, a young grade one teacher who loved her students. The school that she taught at was the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Some of you know that the Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 was the place of a mass school shooting. Victoria Soto hid her grade one students in her room, and then the gunman came to the door, and she tried to convince them that the students weren't in the classroom, but that they were in the gym. But as he argued with her, some of the students tried to run out of their hiding place and escape the room. And the gunman turned his gun on them. Victoria Soto jumped in front of her students, shielded them with her body, and died of multiple gunshot wounds. She was a teacher who loved her students to the death. And in that brief moment, she showed us a little example, a little example of the kind of teacher that Jesus is. Christ was willing to die for you, his disciples. He took upon himself the gunshots of sin and shame, the bullets of judgment and wrath that were meant for you because of your sins. And he did that for you and I, who, relatively speaking, don't know much more than a grade one student. He did it so that you might be saved to eternal life. Jesus was not only willing to die, but he was able to save all of those for whom he died. And this is important. Why? Because of this. I know in my own life, sometimes I feel so far from what I ought to be as a disciple. I'm a pastor. I get up in front of a pulpit every, every Sunday, but sometimes I feel so small. Like I'm only just beginning my journey in learning to follow Jesus. But I have a teacher that loves me. You have a teacher that loves you, who died for you, not because your grades were good, not because your performance as a student not because you get A-plus in the following Jesus exam, but just because he loves you, because he cares for you. And that same Jesus, he is and always can, will be, continue to be with you. You see, we're, we're learners not trying to earn the love of Jesus, but we're learners because we have been loved by our teacher. 
Well, that gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope. I hope you'll join me in hoping that one day, by God's grace and God's power, one day I'm going to be fully trained. I'm going to be like my teacher. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, our great teacher, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your care for us. You've saved us to teach us. Thank you, Lord, and hear this prayer, and then hear our praise as we sing together in Jesus' name. Amen.